Hello, hello, and hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode. If not now, when? In today's show, I am so so excited to welcome Mark Nathan to join us today. Mark is an experienced leader in the tech startup community, also known as a super connector for connecting entrepreneurs to his customer, investors, or partners. Today, Mark is a vice president of a client strategy in a law firm based in Austin, Texas, where he helps his clients discover appropriate capital sources. Mark founded T Square Agency to support selected clients with a comprehensive growth strategy and funding sources. Throughout his entire career, Mark has assisted early stage founders with strategy, capital acquisition, digital mobile marketing, customer development, and so much more. He today publishes weekly Texas Square Startup Newsletter, which is must-read in my opinion. That offers news, opinions, events across the entire startup ecosystem in Texas. With that, everybody, I am so beyond excited. Please join me to welcome Mark to the show. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining us. Thank you so so much, Mark. So so honored and grateful that you join us today. So that's diving. That's telling us how does all the magic begin for you. Well, I don't know if there's actually magic, but I'll tell you how it began. So I'm from Houston originally, Houston, Texas. I came from not so much an entrepreneurial family, but certainly a business-oriented family. My father was an attorney back in Houston, and that's pretty much the part of the story that got me started. I went to school here at University of Texas.、Mm. I went to school for film and television. I thought I was going to be a TV producer. Oh, I didn't know that. And then I wanted to be a TV agent. And I realized you have to be really cutthroat and really nasty to do it well. So I also realized that the starting salary of somebody living in New York or LA for the film production business is about sixteen thousand dollars a year. And I said that's not enough for me. So during my senior year of college, my dad, who was once again an attorney, had a bunch of clients that were raising capital、mm-hmm. during the first dot com boom, and I sort of got sucked into that. I was an intern for him over the summer、mm-hmm. and worked with a number of clients. And by this time, spring break rolled around in my senior year. I realized it's really what I wanted to do. What What is appealing about that coming from at the time? You were your world is about filming, is about production, is about all those fancy glamorous, right? What's shifting from that to startup world that appealing to you? It's a great question, and I completely realized that doing film production specifically and doing startups were almost identical. A business、so. plan was like a script. A director was like the CEO. You had to hire people. You had to go find your customers. You had to figure out your marketing. You had to figure out the actual production.、Mm. In the case of technology startups, of film production is almost like building code and building a code base.、Mm. So I quickly realized there were a lot of very similar parallels to the film business, which is really not a business. It's a three ring circus. It's really about who you know and what you're doing and all that. It's not a meritocracy as it used to be.、Mm-hmm. It used to be that way back in the old days of Hollywood. That's not the case anymore. And during the dot com boom, I realized that we were seeing a renaissance of new ideas and creativity, and I realized that's what I wanted to jump onto. Wow, what a pivot! It was. That's amazing. I love that. Such a yes and attitude.、Mm-hmm. And yet, right now, sounds like in hindsight, look like they are so parallel. But at the moment of it, probably not exactly the cool thing that you thought you're going to be doing afterwards. That's correct. But you say yes to that anyway. I did. I did. I was really a nerd growing up. I loved technology and computers, and I was always building machines and playing around with software and、yeah. doing, reading all the magazines. 
because we didn't really have the internet back then. It was all PC World magazine and things like that. Yeah. So I understood the technology side of things. And I think I understood almost the, not the actual business part of it, but understood the motivations of the business. Mm. And that fascinated me. Mm. So I got very lucky and I got involved with a number of different companies very early on in my career. That's amazing. So what's next from there? So after that, I worked with my father for eight years, and I don't recommend working with family to anybody if, unless there's some real boundaries. I was actually so? living at home at the time, so I saw him 18 hours a day. Mm. It was a very intense business, mm. and we were, um, my dad has since passed, but he was a yeller. And so he would yell and scream all day long, and it was something that I got used to, not that I loved it, but it was just something I understood. And it made me realize that it actually made me a lot sharper. If you're coddled, if everything's nice and comfortable and sweet, it doesn't really give you real-world lessons. And mm -hmm. I was very fortunate to be in that situation. Number one, I was the youngest guy in the room for many years. I'm certainly not now. Mm. And ultimately, it taught me how to talk to other business people and how to have them take me seriously. When I was, you know, early 20s, running around doing business development and fundraising in Houston, Texas, which is not known for its tech community even though I've done a lot of, I tried very hard to fix that and still am to a large degree. Wow, that does not sound like an easy journey. How it, do you move through all that? Uh, I don't think anybody's journey is very easy. Everybody has their own issues. Everybody has their own problems. Look at you. You were in a small village in China. Here you are today in Austin, Texas, being a pillar of the community. <laughs> and it's fantastic to watch that. Thank there you. is no such thing as easy. And even the ones that do have it easy, they have ambitions that they have to actually fulfill as well. So there's mm -hmm. pressure on them as well. So what what drive you forward? What made you to move through those hurdles and still continue to drive you back forward at those uneasy times? I, I think what it really boils down to, and I've learned a lot about this just dealing with entrepreneurs for the last 20 or so years. Mm -hmm. And what I've come to realize is that the truth is, is that I believe that entrepreneurship and startups and the mentality of growing something and building something new is a very creative endeavor. Mm -hmm. But I also believe, and I, this is slightly controversial, so I'm willing to take the, uh, the, the, end, the end of this as a, <laughs> I believe that true entrepreneurship is internal. You're internally mm -hmm. motivated. People who really look at the world in a different way, who mm -hmm. look at it from a entrepreneurial lens, have to do that from an internal motivation. Mm -hmm. I don't believe entrepreneurship can be taught. I don't believe there are books that you can read that will make you a better entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Now, there's certainly skills you can learn. Mm -hmm. There's certainly ways of going about things and ways to communicate your mission and your vision with other people. Mm -hmm. But as far as actually seeing a problem in the world and knowing how to exploit it for profit, mm -hmm. I think that's an internal motivation. And I always had that. So talk about that. What is your internal motivation? My internal motivation truly is to connect people. I'm not a founder. I've never considered myself an entrepreneur. I consider myself a really big cheerleader. Mm. And something that I read in a book that everybody should read called Startup Communities by Brad Feld really put this in a very sharp focus a few years ago for me. Ultimately, he said there's two types of people in a startup community. There's the seeders and the feeders. Seeders are the entrepreneurs. They're mm. the lifeblood of any community. They're the ones that actually take the step and take the leap to become entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And then there's everybody else. Mm -hmm. And the everybody else was me. I was a service provider. Mm -hmm. My father was providing legal services. Mm -hmm. I was providing marketing and fundraising services, mm -hmm. but I was helping them. So I wasn't actually doing the work myself, but I was so close to it that I really felt the energy and I really enjoyed it. I love that, that you have such a clear self-awareness about who you are, what drives you. And you 
very happy about that and just go with it rather than I feel like maybe sometimes people trying to be others that they are not. Founders are very special. Mm. And with and anybody can really start a company. So anybody really could be an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. but very few people actually are. Mm. And so there's a lot of uh, what we call in the business entrepreneurs, people mm. who want to be entrepreneurs because they see the glamorous lifestyle. Mm-hmm. They see the articles on the front cover of Forbes and Fast Company and all the magazines. They see the articles done in TechCrunch. Yeah. And they hear that it's so glamorous and it's easy to raise money. It's easy to start companies, easy to exit. None of those things are true. So tell us the truth. You talk about glamorous lifestyle. I was like, wow, that's the first bubble she burst immediately. Founders' lifestyle is not glamorous. What exactly is the truth, in your opinion, Mark? The truth is, is that it's not glamorous, but it's certainly fulfilling. Mm. There's something that I like to call psychological profit mm. that a lot of people get from either finding a problem and solving it mm-hmm. or exploiting a glitch in the market or the system. Mm. And most entrepreneurs, a lot of people want to think that entrepreneurs are doing this for all the right reasons. They're doing it because they want to change the world. They want to make a dent in the universe. They want to become, uh, they want to make the world better. And to a large degree, that is true. Mm -hmm. But the real truth is that most true entrepreneurs really want to put a dent in their wallet. They want to get Mm -hmm. rich. They want to make money. They want to have a lifestyle that is commiserate with the work they've done. Mm -hmm. And that's not a bad thing. And I don't want to go all the way back to the movie Wall Street, but they talk about greed is good. And in the case of entrepreneurship, greed really is good. A lust for life, a lust for making changes, and a lust for actually creating something, there's something really intrinsically interesting about that, and it's certainly not boring. Mm. So I was always around people that were doing interesting things, and I was doing everything in my power to help them because I found it interesting, and that's all it really was. It was really a curiosity. Mm. I love that, Mar. You have such a heart to serve to supporting people around you and lifting everybody up. And I believe that's one of your superpower. That's why today so many people surrounding you and just really love what you do and want to support you. That's very kind. And I'm very proud of that as well. It's incredible. Thank you. So let's talk about what's next. So uh, you in family business for eight years, you've been sharpened your skills that you pencil every single day, being in this room, being in those conversations. And what's happened next? So the dot-com crash happened. Mm. Uh, We survived. We actually had a number of investments that did well. We had quite a few that did poorly. So I saw the roller coaster. Mm. Uh, We actually had a number of public companies, which was very common at the time. It's not common now. And so I was watching tickers all day long. I was watching things go green and things go red, and I was tearing my hair out. I don't have much hair to lose. So (laughs) so I realized that when my father retired, I wanted to take a little bit of a break. Mm -hmm. So I ended up working for an organization that I'm still very proud of. I was Mm -hmm. a volunteer since they started it called the Houston Technology Center. Yes. Houston Technology Center at the time was the largest nonprofit incubator for technology companies in Texas. I'd been volunteering since they opened in 1999. And in 2007, they knocked on my door and looked for me to actually join them as the director of IT. Mm. Now, director of IT does not mean plugging in servers and making sure the phones work and fixing keyboards. IT in that case meant anything that didn't have to do specifically with oil and gas, medical, or nanotechnology, or even NASA technology. Those are the four other categories at the Houston Technology Center, HTC. Mm. So I was the catch-all. I got everybody else. The one thing that I convinced them of in 2007 was a technology company was not just hardware. It wasn't just a box. It wasn't just a a, a technology. It was actually web-based businesses that I was really keen on actually helping. So this is at the height of the social media boom. This is the height of Twitter coming online. Facebook was just becoming a thing for the public since Facebook launched in 2005. 
And a lot of people forget this, that the internet wasn't really a broadband situation until 2005 when more than 50% of U.S. homes actually had broadband access. Most of it was dial-up at the time. Even businesses, that was the case. So more people had more access to more digital content and digital businesses, and that was the height of the Web 2.0 movement. Wow. And so I was right in the heart of that, and I, I loved it. I had a lot of friends there. I like to say that I was the second person in Houston on Twitter, and the only reason I know that is because my very close friend was the first person on Twitter and asked me to join. And this was before Twitter really hit it big at South by Southwest in 2007 in March. So I was already an old hat at the business <laughs> by three months. I was on in December. And ultimately, I met a lot of friends, and we had a lot of activity, and friends that I still talk to this very day that I met online originally through Twitter and through some other online channels. But ultimately, it was really about connecting people, and that's the thread of my career. Mm. And what happened next? Sounds like you have a lot of fun, made amazing friends, and wonderful impact in Texas ecosystem. What's next? What's next? So after HTC, I was there for two and a half years. I helped launch a handful of companies that did quite well, a number of companies that didn't, a number of companies that just failed outright, and that happens. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, as long as you learn lessons from both, then you've actually gained something, even if the company financially does not do so well. Mm. What's the biggest lesson? I want to pause here to ask you now. While you see so many amazing companies to see, while some maybe don't, what are you see the common thread in both scenarios? I've been very fortunate in my career. I've seen thousands of startups. I've looked at hundreds of pitches, maybe mm -hmm. thousands of pitches. I've talked to hundreds of entrepreneurs over my time. And the one lesson I can really figure out that I can tell people that I think is holding true for every kind of company, every kind of startup, and any kind of industry is make sure you fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Oh, my God. I said that. I'm sure fall you did. Fall in love with your problem, not your solution. Love your customer, not, oh, my God, Yes. yes. It's the one thing that I think really drives people. Mm. I talk to a lot of technologists, especially men, who have great ideas and they want to take some technology and move it into a different direction. Mm -hmm. But the technology itself doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. It's the solution for your customer and whether they're willing to pay you enough to make it mm -hmm. profitable that really matters. Mm. So if you understand an industry, if you understand what the tribulations are in an industry and how to make that work, that's the critical aspect of being a successful company. Mm. In my opinion. Mm. That's amazing. So what happened after two years? You love it. Why leave? I loved I loved the work. I was so happy. I considered myself, and this was self-appointed, of course, the head of business development for the entire city of Houston, <laughs> which was not exactly what my boss thought I was supposed to be doing. So we clashed terribly. He threatened to fire me more than once. He was right more than once. But ultimately, I realized that what I wanted to do was be a connector mm. and make those dots connect in a way that most people weren't because, frankly, nobody else was doing it. I do a lot of the work that I do. I do a lot of the content that I produce, not because the world needs it, because nobody else is doing it. Mm. And not that I could do it any better, but I'm first in line, so I might as well try. And if somebody better comes along, I'm more than happy to step aside. I love that you thought you have a servant mentality as you you truly here to serve and see whatever gap is in the ecosystem you want to step into being that person to be the change we want to see in the world which That's is right. wow amazing so kudos to your amazing amazing work thank you and i'm curious um it's very rare that i'm compared to gandhi so i appreciate that <laughs> i i just truly do i feel like you are just so so selfless with the entire thread of your journey come along everything you do you put yourself into 
that situation truly, you know, create impact from the from the place of servant leadership, which is. I won't correct you because that's not that's not right. But I will tell you that it's not selfless. It's selfish. Tell me more. It's very selfish on my part. I make no secret about it. I have a very big ego. I like being the guy that everybody knows. I don't mind telling anybody that because it's very true. But I do feel that a lot of people simply don't have the experience nor the resources to see things, basically see the forest for the trees when it comes to early stage startups, mm. especially because most people, when they have an idea, they go into their cave, mostly in a, a, a you know, they're sitting in front of their laptops, they're, they're tapping things out, they're making code, they're talking to customers, hopefully, mm -hmm. but they're really not talking to anybody else in the community. And most often the case is that there's no community to talk to. I can speak to Houston, I can speak a little bit now to Austin and really across Texas, and this is true across all startup hubs and startup communities. It's very, very rare that people can talk to somebody that's doing a startup that's very similar to them. Similar business, similar industry, similar stage, similar situation as far as money or talent. And it makes it very hard to really let loose and really understand what other people are going through. Well, I've made myself that person. I've learned a lot about a lot of different companies and a lot of different industries. And so I'm very fortunate that I get mm. the call when somebody has an idea mm -hmm. or somebody has a problem. I'm typically one of the people they call because they know that I'm not married to any one particular solution or mm -hmm. one particular type of solution. As far as mm -hmm. I work now and flashing forward, but I work now for a law firm, not every job and not every business that I deal with has to do with the legal aspect of it. A lot of times it's money. A lot of times it's people. Actually, the truth is it's all people. <laughs> it's all people. All startups are about psychology and what people need and how to serve them. Mm -hmm. What surprised you the most, Mark? You read a lot of amazing stories. You meet incredible people. You've seen uh, the ticker go green and red, all everything between. What surprised you the most? The biggest surprise, and I'm going to be, once again, a little bit controversial here, mm -hmm. is that most startups don't know how to Google. Let what? me explain. A lot of companies get started because they hear about a good idea, they see maybe half a problem to be solved, and they just dive right in. Very, very rarely do people do a Google search about potential competitors or other companies that can and should be doing the solution that they're trying to solve. So a lot of people just dive right in head first, which is great for entrepreneurship, and I understand that. But there's a lot of research that needs to be done that's simply not done. It just doesn't happen. I talk to countless numbers of startups and companies mm. that never even heard of the most, in my mind, direct competitor or a giant company that's doing something. Mm. And that's where they get caught up in the hamster wheel of becoming a lifestyle entrepreneur, not an actual problem-solving entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So to answer that question directly, People don't do enough research on the way in. Mm -hmm. And the flip side is true. Sometimes people do too much research and they get analysis paralysis. Mm. They see everything as a threat. They see everything as competition and they never start their company. Ouch. It hurts. Life is hard. It is. <laughs> it certainly is. There's always a right balance, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Mark, you mentioned about, you know, one thing that really drives you is you love to connect in the right talents. You love to see things in different perspectives, see the forest for the tree. Correct. I love that analogy, by the way. I'm curious, why do you love that? Why do you love connecting people? Do you always know that about yourself? What driving that? I learned that early on. I was always in, in school, in middle school and high school. 
I was always the kid that was friends with a bunch of different groups. I wasn't, you know, a sports kid. I wasn't a band kid. I wasn't a theater kid. I was around everybody, and I just liked being the connector between a lot of the different groups. I had a lot of different friends and acquaintances mm. from all different walks of life. I really enjoyed that. And I came to realize, and I mentioned it earlier, mm-hmm. I learned that I actually enjoyed it at a at a very deep level, and I called it psychological profit. I enjoyed it. I got a buzz out of making a connection. I really did that in so many different ways in high school, college, and mm-hmm. now in my early career that when I saw the spark of somebody, when I saw the l- eyes light up from me making an introduction to somebody, I realized that that felt good to me, and I really enjoyed doing that. And that... Yeah. The idea that I can make an introduction or I can make mm-hmm. a an idea happen in somebody's head and they actually did something about it and it actually helped them, whether it helped their business or helped them personally, mm-hmm. I felt really good about that. So a lot of my professional wins, I don't count as money. Most people count money because that's the only thing we can do. Mm-hmm. A lot of my professional wins in my career, you can't really track my career on LinkedIn. It's all over the place. It doesn't make any sense to anybody. But in my mind, the timeline of mine, my career is when I've made certain introductions or mm-hmm. said a certain thing or twisted a certain company a different way or made an introduction that actually turned into an employee or an investor that really had meaningful help to the company. And those are the bits that I remember. And those are the ones that I really strive to do again. I really love that you turned what you love to do to truly what people need the most. And you combine the two together and become such a win-win-win world for everybody. Well, thank such you for a that. blessing, really. Thank you for that. I, I will tell you, and this is something that was a little bit fearful at the beginning of my career. Obviously, I was under the umbrella of my dad for many years, so I could do a little bit on the side and I can do a little bit to help others, but it wasn't really the focus of my business. Mm-hmm. Once I was done with that, or once I moved on from that in my career, I realized that I had a, and this was my early 20s, let's say I was 26, 27. Mm -hmm. My biggest fear, and this is something that I really worked very hard on to actually overcome, is that I never wanted to be considered a flake. Somebody who said something and didn't do it, somebody who made a promise and never kept it. I was very fearful of that. I had a lot of people asking me for a lot of things, and I felt like I was juggling chainsaws every day because I was really playing with people's lives. Getting funding for your startup could really mean whether you're going to make payroll or not that month or whether you're going to get the big sale that's going to make your company. So I had a lot of responsibility. At least I took on a lot of responsibility. And when I failed that because I was either making too many promises or I just simply couldn't accomplish what I wanted to, it made me feel terrible. So I wanted to avoid. It was really pain avoidance. I wanted to avoid feeling terrible. So I literally learned how to be very direct and very specific about how I could help somebody or not. And putting those boundaries on it and putting those barriers on it made my life that much easier because I only did things that I knew I can do instead of trying to be everything to everybody, which quite frankly, a lot of entrepreneurs try to do at least at the beginning stages. Mm. So I was really trying to avoid the the label of being being a flake. Mm. And it really bothered me. I, I saw people that were older than me. I saw people in their career that every single time I met them, whether it's six months or 10 Mm -hmm. months or 15 months, they always had a different business card. They were always jumping from one job to another Mm. because, and it wasn't a bad thing. And it's certainly more prominent now, certainly with the millennials and the Gen Z's doing that kind of work. That wasn't really the case growing up as a Gen Xer. The fact is, is that you are expected to have a job for two to five years and really grind it out and do it. The job might not have been great, but you were to learn in that capacity. Well, I never had a real quote unquote job. I never did that. And a lot of my friends did. A lot of my friends were really, really smart, 
engineers and programmers and all that. And they were working for big Fortune 500 companies and giant consulting shops and banks and things like that. I never had that training or background. So I always had a chip on my shoulder that I had to be more intelligent or more knowledgeable than they were for all the training they got. So I spent a lot of time reading, not necessarily books, but lots and lots of contemporary magazines, lots of blogs at the time, now Twitter and things like that. So I really felt like I had to be at least as smart as they were so that I could hold my own in a conversation without the training that they had. So because of that, I went from after Houston Technology Center, I took two separate jobs as a head of business development for a web agency and a digital marketing agency. And so I learned sales, tra traditional sales. I learned how to actually sell products and projects. And that was really eye-opening for me because at the end of the day, it was the same thing. I was solving somebody else's problem. Mm. And in this case, I was doing it on behalf of two separate companies, both back in Houston. Wow. Do you feel like today you can walk in any rooms and hold a space? Yes. Uh, I, I do, and I'm, I'm very proud of that. I, I don't talk about this with a lot of people because nobody's going to listen but I'm on a podcast, so now you're listening. You have to. Um, it is one of my favorite things to do is to walk yeah. into any room that has business people or that has anybody that's doing anything in the entrepreneurial sense. And first of all, I scan the room to make sure I, I don't know anybody, which is rare nowadays, which I love to say. But I really do feel I can hold my own in just about any conversation regarding early stage businesses. I love this conversation so much, Mark, because in my humble experience with a people that I met, what I found interesting is when I meet incredible people, remarkable people, the more, I think, more smarter, more intelligent he or she is, I found that we all actually all have that imposter syndrome. Certainly. Actually, the more smarter they are, the more they think that they are not there yet. And I'm speaking for myself, also speak for many, many other, you know, startup founders, he or she might think, oh my God, like, I don't have, I don't drop off on hover. I'm not this look or this sound or all these labors they put. And then I feel like, well, I don't, I don't think I deserve a spot. And I think hearing a legend, truly, in Austin ecosystem, someone like you to speak up saying we all felt that way. Clearly. And we all can, yes, acknowledging that's what we are and we can still have that, you know, tangible step to moving towards to um, filling that gap if they are or just truly stepping to the leader we always meant to be. That's really powerful. Well, thank you. And I've always felt like leadership is really about, as you mentioned, servant leadership. Mm. People who lead from the front are ones that will do the work and help others figure out how to do the work. Mm. People that lead from the back, people that are bosses that tell you what to do, they're not really supporting you. I've always been very enamored with the people that are leading from the front, and mm. I've always tried to position myself in any way I can mm. to be somebody who says, I want to do this. I think we should do this. I want to convince you to do it with me instead mm. of doing it for me. And I think that's really important. Yeah. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs that really become successful figure that out very early on. Speaking of success, Mark, I'm curious, what's your definition for success? And with that, do you think you are successful? I do think I'm very successful, and I think my definition really is freedom. Mm. Success to me really means that you are free to do what you want when you want it. Mm. And that could be because of financial means. That could be because of a situation you're in. That could be because of time. Mm -hmm. I've come to realize that the people that I know that are the wealthiest dollar-wise are not necessarily the happiest. And one of the reasons, and I say this out loud, even though I do work for a law firm, 
And my father, as I mentioned, was a lawyer. My grandmother was actually a lawyer here in Texas before really any women were doing solo practicing work. So I come from a long line of lawyers, but I'm not one for a very good reason. I found it very difficult to find a happy working attorney. I've had a lot of happy people. I found a lot of attorneys. I found very rarely did I ever find a happy law practicer or practitioner. The reason why that is is because the law is a tough business. Clients are always yelling at you. They're always in trouble. There's always a problem. My father used to say, you never call a lawyer or a plumber with good news. It's always bad news. <laughs> so I come to realize the only, only happy lawyers I ever met were litigators, people that were fighting all day long because they like to fight. I didn't want to be that person. Mm. So I decided after many years and years and years of almost daily um, admonitions to actually go to law school, I finally said, Dad, I'm not doing it. And that freed me up to say, this is what I want to be. So to get back to your question earlier, you asked about success. I believe success is the freedom to do what you want when you want it. And to that degree, I am extraordinarily successful. Now, could I make more money? Yes. Do my kids want me to have more money? Absolutely. Um, But money is just one measure of that, and it's not the only measure. But I am extraordinarily successful because I have freedom of my schedule and my time. I could meet with anybody I want to meet with. I can have coffee or lunch with anybody that is available. I can do a podcast in the middle of the day. Those are the kinds of things that a lot of people, especially those that are not entrepreneurial, that are working nine to five or working what we call regular jobs, Mm. simply don't have. And for me, I've traded in, in my mind, vast wealth, whether working for a venture capital firm, an investment bank, or working for a large startup to to go to an exit. I've traded that with the ability to actually help people. And for me, that's psychological profit once again. And for that, I'm very wealthy. Wow. Wow, Mark, that is so remarkable. You know, there's one book that I recently read, and it's called Five Largest Regret in Life. Mm. The author is uh, a nurse, you know, uh, take care of a patient in the last mile of their life. Think about the last two, three months when people are about to passing. And at the last mile of their lifetime, people opened up often opened up about their life journey to this particular nurse. So she spent that eight years listening to all the countless life story. And she wrote a book about five largest regrets people might have. And what do you think is number one biggest regret? Everybody, man or woman, gender, races, culture, country, all and above, all have in common. One biggest regret. If I had to guess, yes, I'm going to guess, and I'm probably going to be wrong, and that's okay because you're going to yeah. tell me. I would say probably not strengthen their relationships, but I could be wrong. Very close. Okay. Uh, Number one regret, that was actually top five. Okay. Number one regret is I wish I could live a life truth to myself Ah. than what others wanted for me. Mm. And when you share about your success, I thought it was so extraordinary. Think about your entire family, your entire uh, maybe culture, the way how you grow up. Certainly. You are meant to be a lawyer. I imagine that. Definitely. And that was always what is in you or what your father or your uh, you know, grandparents expected out of you. And the fact that you have a courage to know that that's not your truth and stay strong for that. And and that is so, so liberating and so inspiring. That could be lawyer, could be any Anything. other, right? But I felt oftentimes life is so hard to face our own truth, which is the hardest thing in the whole world. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you do, and I can certainly see why you have so much light into that freedom, that sense of accomplishment and that psychological benefit you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Wow, it's so, so powerful. Well, I knew that early on, and I appreciate you saying that, 
I knew early on that I had something that not a lot of people have. I knew I can pretty much talk my way out of anything or into anything. <laughs> so I'm a talker. I am an extroverted extrovert. There's no question about it. And I came to realize early on, somebody with my skill set and my background, there's only a handful of things we can do well. Mm. And so I wanted to focus on those. I didn't want to, I'm not, the, I'm actually quite lazy in that I don't like to do a lot of challenging things because I don't realize, I don't think there's really a whole lot of benefit in that journey. I think that personally, if you do something well and you enjoy it, you should stick to that and become an expert in it. Mm. So what I came to realize is I was an expert connector. And I was just very, very fortunate, very lucky more than anything else mm. to find a job and find several jobs in my career that actually helped me flourish in that regard. Incredible. Because I could have done a lot of things very, very poorly, but I'm very good at doing a couple of things very well. Sometimes that leans into actual sales, like direct sales. Sometimes that leans in a little bit of marketing. In my role now, I do business development. And business development is something I hold very, very close to my heart. Business development as a career and as a business is not something we often talk about. It's sort of a weird, quirky type of business. It's not Why? exactly sales. It's not exactly marketing. Business development is sales. And feel free to correct me, but that's how I understand it. I understand. Most people do. And this is what I'm telling you. Business development is not sales. Business development is not marketing. It is a blend of both. Mm. Business development is unique unto itself. And business development really is, in my mind, being an ambassador for whatever brand that you're working for. Mm. It's waving the flag and mm -hmm. building up the presence in people's minds of what the business should be. Yeah. So it certainly leans into sales and it mm -hmm. certainly leans into marketing, but I believe it's something unique unto itself. Mm. There was actually a book written here in Austin it's called uh, The Sumo Advantage by a guy named Bernie Brenner. Bernie I met as a mentor at Capital Factory. He was one of the co-founders of Carfax. Very, very bright guy. He's working on a big company now called Rollick. But he wrote this book and he gave me a copy and I read it and I just, it opened my eyes because he was the first person I ever saw in print to actually talk about business development as its own category, its own career. Mm. And I've come to realize that truly gifted business developers know what their partners, not necessarily customers, but what their partners want and help them get there. And so there's support mechanisms for all those types of things. And once again, a lot of people said what you said, that business development is just a certain type of sale. And in some degree, it is. That's correct. I mean, everything is sales when you're not actually building a product. But ultimately, I've always felt that business development is really strengthening a brand and doing it through relationships and communication, not necessarily through activities like marketing or events, even though I do quite a bit of that. Wow. Oh, no. I would definitely have to check out that book. Please. So, Mark, tell us about what you're up to today and what you're most excited about. Ah, I'm excited about a lot of things. I'm very, very, very proud of the Texas market from a startup perspective. It's mm. growing and we're getting more activity. We're getting more money. We're getting more people. People are recognizing Texas is not just a mm -hmm. poor substitute for San Francisco Bay or even New York from a finance perspective. We're building our own ecosystem here. Mm -hmm. We're doing a lot of different things that have taken, like we've all said, 20 years to get to. But here we are. Mm -hmm. When a lot of people started thinking about Austin as a tech town, they started doing this back in 98 and 99, knowing it was going to take them 20 years or so. And here it is or so. Here it is 2022 when we're recording this. And we've come to realize that we really are a very hot market for the kinds of companies we want. And that means that we had a great educational system through the University of Texas 
school system, that's not just UT, that's A&M and the 16 hospitals and universities across Texas. We really tried to focus on workforce development. We brought in real capital, real money, and that's for all kinds of different growth opportunities and, and different things like that regarding venture capital, but also the angel networks, also the individual angels. We've created a resource for capital to grow these businesses. But more importantly, and I think a lot of people forget about this, we've actually created an opportunity for people to sell startups into larger entities. One thing that a lot of people forget is that in order to be a truly successful entrepreneur or a startup, you need customers. So we have collectively trained our larger entities, the big oil and gas companies, the big real estate companies, the bigger hospital systems, these giant, very formal, very frankly boring businesses to actually understand and embrace startups. Mm -hmm. So that's taken us a long time, but we're there. Mm -hmm. And for lots of different reasons and for lots of different organizations, that's the name of the game. It's not, I I tend to not really believe in uh, new, like fundraising news is not news to me. Uh, fundraising is a great milestone for certain people. You should pop the champagne and get excited that very same day, but get to work the next day. Mm. Raising money in itself is not a milestone. But finding key customers and getting really high net promoter scores for what you're doing as a company, those are critically important because that's what builds a sustainable business. And I think only now we're starting to realize that. Mm, amazing. Wow. I love that because you have such a well breath about what's happened in the entire Texas ecosystem. And so insight is just so, so incredible. Tell us about what you personally are up to and how can people find you? They can find me very easily. Mm. So as I mentioned, I work for a law firm. I'm not a lawyer, as I mentioned many times today. I do business development for a law firm called Egan Nelson. EganNelson.com is a very, very boutique, very specialized law firm specifically focused on building technology and consumer packaged goods startups. Hmm. And so it's been really, they've been extraordinarily good to me. I've been really uplifted by a lot of the support they give me. And hopefully they've returned it and then some by putting them on the map and helping them grow their business. So I really look at them not just as my employers, which they are, of course, but I look at them as my largest sponsor. Hmm. And I do everything in my power to enhance their brand and help grow their business. And I say they're not my because they're growing it, not me. My name's not on the door and it never will be. But I certainly do have a part in some of the early chapters of how they're going to grow over time. Mm. So that's one thing. And because of that job, and this is why it's so important I keep mentioning it, this job has allowed me to express a lot of things that I like to do. I specifically, as we've mentioned earlier, I write a newsletter that actually got me the job in the first place. I do, it's called the Texas Squared Startup Newsletter. It comes out once a week, texassquared.com. I've been doing this, at at this recording this week, I think I'm going to be publishing my 382nd or 383rd issue. Oh my God. I've never missed a week. I've never missed it by a minute. It has been a miracle because I, as I said, I don't like the idea of me becoming flaky. So I actually started day one by putting a number on it so that I would be able to track when it went out. And I picked Sunday morning at 8 a.m. because I wanted people to just read it as a digest while they're having their morning coffee over the week and kind of understand what's going on in Texas. One thing I did when I started this about six years ago, almost seven now, is that there were a lot of really great media outlets and really great blogs and really great magazines that were covering individual cities, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, but nobody was covering Texas as its own market. 
And Texas as a market is pretty remarkable. Hmm. There's lots of things going on here in Texas. Uh, obviously, we've got a huge oil and gas market. We've got a huge medical market that was ultimately paid for by the oil and gas businesses that essentially donated and grew the medical uh, practice in the 60s and 70s, at least in Houston. And that's somewhat true of Dallas as well. But what I've come to realize is that Texas as a market, hmm. 9% of the U.S. population, 26 million people, Fortune 500 companies more than any other concentrated state in the United States. We had a lot of things going on, but we were very reluctant to talk about it because each of the individual cities, Houston to Dallas, San Antonio to Austin, weren't really talking to each other. Mm. And so what I came to realize is that if I put out a newsletter, just something simple and basic and easy, at least people could be aware of what's going on in other cities, mm. if not their own city. Mm. And so that was the premise of what I started. And like I said, I've been doing this for almost seven years now. I really enjoy it. I take roughly 15 to 1,700 stories every week and distill them down to about 250 stories, put it out there. It's very difficult to do. It's even more difficult to read, and I recognize that. But it really is, as, as far as I know, the only source that's really covering Texas from north mm -hmm. to south and east to west. Well, I love it. Thank so you. if you have not subscribed, make sure to do that right now. That's very kind. <laughs> and about five years ago, and this is what you asked me earlier, what I'm really interested in now. Mm -hmm. So we keep talking about technology and startups, and we think about startups from a sort of a two kids in a hoodie with <laughs> laptops. That's kind of what we think of as startups. About five years ago, I got very interested in a totally different industry in a totally different category called consumer packaged goods. Mm. Consumer packaged goods, the people don't know, is anything you could buy at a Target, whether it's food and beverage, which is how most people think about it, Anything you can buy on the liquor shelves, anything you can buy over-the-counter drugs, uh, consumer electronics, mm -hmm. clothing, shoes, apparel, accessories, anything that you can buy that's consumable, mm. typically that comes in a package. Mm. About four or five years ago, there was this new category that came up in the tech world that we all know now as e-commerce mm. that specifically was around direct-to-consumer, DTC. Mm -hmm. So instead of you having to go to the store, whether it's Whole Foods or Target or any retail, you can actually go online to a website and buy something directly. And there was a huge spike in that business during COVID, of course. It's come down just a hair, but it's never going away. So the marriage between consumer packaged goods and tech is really e-commerce and through that direct to consumer. Mm. And so I got very interested in that space. I started a, my own newsletter for that called Texas Boxed. I started my own little uh, happy hour, which is done not at night with drinks, but in the morning with coffee. And I do that once a month. It's expanded quite a bit. I've been able to actually partner up with a gentleman, a friend of mine now in the California area where we do what's called the Consumer VC Summit. Mm. His name is Mike Gelb. He's got the Consumer VC podcast. We met because he had a great podcast of a local guy here in town. I linked in with him. We had a phone call during COVID. I realized he and I saw a lot of the same things together. So we very quickly decided we wanted our own events, which we did virtually for the first two years during 2020 and 2021. And just this year, 2022, we had our first in-person meeting at South by Southwest, which is a big part of what I do here. And uh, about two weeks ago, we actually had our second in-person and we're now planning our third. Wow. So hosting events and putting out content is something that I find very, very refreshing and interesting. And frankly, something that not a lot of people do. Mm. So that's where I fit in to my little unique niche mm -hmm. so that I can help people doing that at scale. It's amazing. What is one thing that most people don't know about you, Mark, but you wish people do? 
I'm a pretty open book. Uh, what people don't know about me, what people don't know about me is I actually get pretty worked up over things. I get pretty emotional about things, specifically around companies that companies or individuals or people or activities that in my mind aren't doing the right thing. Mm. So I get uh, I get pretty animated over things that are at least to me and to my personal judgment, my opinion, aren't right for the community. So when somebody acts on their own accord or in their own self-interest, that's perfectly fine as long as they're not harming the community. I get very, very protective of the startup community, not just here in Austin or Texas or even the Americas, mm -hmm. all over the world. I have a very, very hard time with companies that exploit other startups. Mm. And when I say that, I mean, truth is startups are like toddlers. They kind of have an idea and a direction, but they don't really have the training or the experience to really learn what they need to do. Most toddlers have, uh, you know, the idea where they put their hand on the stove once and then get it burned. Mm. Very few people stop them from putting their hand on the stove. And I feel very strongly that it's my duty, it's my, my obligation to help people from making terrible mistakes. And I get very animated and very upset when I see people trying to take the community that I've helped build, and we've all helped build, and use it for their own personal reasons. And that really bothers me. So I get, um, I get pretty worked up over that. I think that's uh, maybe that's not a secret, but it's something I, I've actually happened in the last few, last couple of years. I've seen it quite often. Mm -hmm. So I am very, very, very protective of early stage startups. But I also realize that sometimes they have to fail in order to understand and learn a lesson. So the one thing I have a real problem with is exploitation. Love that passion. You speak like a true startup fathers, looking for all the amazing startup rising and just make sure they are doing on their path, not being taken advantage by others. Right. Tell me about Art of War. I heard that you have a thousand copies in your home, quickly. I don't have a thousand copies. I have a few dozen. Uh, Early on, when I was, I guess, in either middle school or high school, I was given a copy of Art of War by Sun Tzu. I mm. got a translation. And I, I realized very, very quickly he wasn't talking about war. He was talking about psychology. And he was talking about the human condition. He was talking about how to actually deal with people. And there was also some very practical steps in there. Mm. And I got in a, I got in a habit of reading a new copy once a year or so. <laughs> and because everybody has a different translation. There's all mm -hmm. kinds of different translations. There's all kinds of different ways to do it. I just found that Art of War is a fundamental text for actually doing business. Mm -hmm. And people that understand it and understand the psychology of it mm -hmm. really do much better. What is one biggest lesson or takeaways you wish people to learn from the book? They talk about the, the the word ground. That means the situation. Mm -hmm. That really means like what is what are your battlefield conditions? Mm -hmm. So really, truly understanding what you are, mm -hmm. like understanding your strengths and weaknesses so you can better understand your enemy's strengths and weaknesses. Now, mm -hmm. enemy in this case is obviously customers, which is actually the hardest part to translate because they're just people you encounter. Yeah. So understanding the ground, understanding your situation, understanding where market conditions are, what funding situation looks like, where things are from a just a market or technology perspective, mm -hmm. that helps you understand where things are going and that makes you successful, or in this case, hoping you win. I love that. So the original text is is exactly what you said. So beautiful. Well, thank you for translating it for me. Thank you. My last question, Mark, it's been such a fun, amazing journey. Speaking about early stage tech founders, you know, if he or she listening today and think, wow, this is such a just incredible. Um, but they are right now in the process of maybe in their role, 
problems or challenges that come to their way,、mm-hmm. what would you advise her or him? What is the one biggest thing you wish they for sure take away from today? Well, one thing that I, I failed to mention, I'll mention it now. We're going to talk about her because I've actually, for the last few years, probably the last ten or twelve years, specialized in work with female entrepreneurs. Oh. And the reason why that is is not for selfish reasons. Because well, it is for selfish reasons. I find, and I'm not speaking to the audience here. I'm speaking just in、yeah. general. I've said this many, many times. Women who start companies are typically much better prepared to run companies <laughs> than men are. M- women tend to be a lot more what I call coachable. They listen better、mm. because women who actually started companies have already gone through the checklist in their mind. They've already. Accomplished all the things they feel like they need to do in order to become successful entrepreneurs, so they become much more focused entrepreneurs, and they're a lot easier to work with and deal with. I'm not saying I don't work with men; I certainly do, and we have to. And I'm not gender biased in any way, but I like focusing on women entrepreneurs because they are so much more prepared, and they are also better multitaskers.、Mm-hmm. And so I just find that easy to deal with. And so the reason I say. That you want to work with women entrepreneurs is because a they kind of have a direction. They need help and they know how to ask for help, but they're not ego driven. They're solution driven, and I like that a lot. But I think to answer your question directly, the one thing I would say to any entrepreneur listening is understand your customer and what their problems are. Live in their world. Understand what their workflow is. Understand what they're doing that you can make better. If you can't make their world better, you don't need to exist.、Hmm. And so that's a very hard lesson for a lot of entrepreneurs to realize when they want to take some brand new technology and apply it to some old problem. It might not be necessary.、Mm-hmm. So really, truly understand your customer and understand what drives them and what motivates them. And more importantly, and I'm not hippy dippy pie in the sky. I want to know what's going to motivate them to actually pull out their credit card and give it to you. Yeah. If you can understand how to profitably solve their problem, you'll be a successful entrepreneur. Mm, wow! Love that ultimate roadmap to product market fit. Correct. Love it. So with that, truly, Mar, such a such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here, being such an open book and share your story in a, such an authentic way. And I truly so inspired by not only who you are, but really how you serve, what kind of leader you are stepping to every single day. And thank you for all the amazing things you have done for Texas ecosystem all together. Truly. Such a blessing! Thank you so much for being here today. When it's been an honor. Thank you. And thank you everybody who's listening today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do, and I cannot wait to see y'all next week. Bye, guys.